Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Industrial S Word, where we try and stop making safety such a bad word. I'm your host, Matthew Ernst of Schmerzel Canada. Today, I'm joined by Dan Seuss from Success on Safety. With over 30 years of practical health and safety experience, Dan has a proven track record in assisting clients to make a difference and improve on H&S matters in just about any type of workplace. From health and safety management system reviews, to education and training, to workplace safety conditions inspections, Success on Safety offers a diverse range of approaches and tools for managers, supervisors, and workers. The heart of any health and safety program is everyone working together in what is termed the Internal Responsibility System, IRS. Prevention is key. Success on safety is poised to meet your needs to assist you in making prevention of harm an active part of day-to-day operations. Health and safety consulting and training for life. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode two of the Industrial S Word. We thought we had so much fun making the first episode. Eh, why not try it again? I'm your host, Matthew Ernst of Schmerzel Canada, and I'm happy to be joined today by Dan Seuss from Success on Safety, who's passionate about putting the health back in health and safety. Now, before speaking to you about being a guest on this podcast, we didn't really know each other. Uh, Since then, we've had a few conversations, and it seems like we've been two people in industry really sailing adjacent to each other without even knowing it. So uh, welcome to the show, Dan. uh, How are you doing today? Hey, Matthew, it's fabulous to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Doing really well. Uh, Just came off uh, a little bit of uh, an R&R day uh, yesterday with uh, the local... uh, Chamber of Commerce and uh, golf tournament and uh, helping out in that area. So uh, what can you say? Like, you know, know, what a great way to end the week. This is even a better way to end the week with a fabulous uh, interview with you and uh, talking about health in health and safety. Appreciate it. Well, I mean, golf is definitely a good way for health. I mean, me, when I play golf, um, there's an old expression when you talk about golf. Golf is a very nice walk ruined by a little white ball i believe so that's typically my golf game i have a very nice walk uh you know typically it's 18 holes and i play all 18 holes i play the whole course you know i i'm a i'm an east west golf player not really a north south so uh i i'm very good at driving the car and having conversations so (laughs) if if you want to get through 18 holes in three four hours I'm definitely not the person, you know, I could stretch it out in a six and nine, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm yeah, definitely I not the best, but a, I mean, a golf, a golf day, like I said, if, if you're not in the cart, you're doing a walk. I mean, that's a great way just to, 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 to exercise. Right. I mean, the best thing about walking uh, is, is moving your joints. And the thing about joint health uh, for, for some people that don't know is uh, the only way to heal a joint injury or anything is to move about, right? So, you know, you can't exercise it. You can't strengthen it. You actually physically just have to move and articulate them. Absolutely. Yes, for sure. Movement is uh, one of the best uh, means of 
getting your body in uh, in in shape, uh, and even if it's just maintenance of where you're at today and not looking to make fabulous uh, improvements of any kind, it's still better than uh, being sedentary. It's it's a uh, it's a good activity to be moving, and uh, if you can move around in in a way that you can enjoy, more power to you and and making th- making things happen. Now, that has to be kind of a difficult situation in an industrial setting because, um, especially for factory workers, line workers, right, where a lot of the times uh, QA inspections or things like that, where you're sitting kind of stagnant, you're doing a few motions, you have a little bit of movement and articulation, but you're not really moving your whole body. So how do you help, uh, you know, industrial places to encourage that? How do you consult with those people to to uh, to make a better again a better health in- initiative yeah well that's uh, you're right there uh, you know moving around in some factory settings is very uh, limited in terms of what uh, the workers can do so i start off with uh, uh, talking with the uh, leadership within an organization about the health and health and safety and and uh, the uh, you know the basics of ergonomics i don't get into fancy terms i just keep things simple and we talk about movement and forced posture and the repetitive uh, repetitive motions are the main factors that we take a look at and we talk about how you know valuable it is for people to be in motion and to change up their uh, postures and their positions and the kinds of motions they get involved with and then we speak about uh, you know things like the opportunities to rotate to different operational uh, activities to uh, enhance and grow the opportunity for people to move about and to do different things and also to become more uh, in you know enjoying their job more and ultimately enjoying the job more leads to productivity it leads to better mental health it leads to better physical health uh, because people care about start to care about themselves when they realize that uh, the employer and the workplace cares about the uh, the workers and that ultimately sort of um, builds on itself and ends up being very beneficial to everybody involved. Yeah, you, you start to feel less of a number when you're in a place that, like you said, there, there's a care, there's, there's an ever presence of the company is invested as you as a person. You're not just a resource, a cog in their wheel to get to an end product. Um, when, you're, when you're talking about a limited movement, a limited space, again, kind of focusing on the health side of the health and safety, um, you were talking about rotating jobs and positions. Is there a guiding number? Is there kind of a rule of thumb that people should try and strive to achieve? Uh, I know I worked in a factory setting. I think it was every hour we tried to move to a different position, which, I mean, in my setting, it was a long time ago, and it was basically sitting looking this way to my right versus sitting looking to the left. So it wasn't a very good example. Um, obviously, health and safety has evolved, a very long time. So again, I'm trying to circle back. Is is there a guiding star that people can can strive for um, who don't know about health and safety? Again, who are more focused on the safety side. Uh, when when they rotate people around in positions, is there like an ideal number that is, is something to go for? 
it does vary and uh, if it can be done once every hour or thereabouts that certainly would be one of the uh, highlights in terms of the best way to do it i would even recommend that if you can't do it once every hour once every two hours will certainly still make a positive difference and that might be more practical in terms of organizing and arranging the work uh, especially with longer shifts uh, in some work settings, you're looking at beyond eight hours. You're looking at 10 to possibly 12 hours in a shift. So every two hours might be more practical, uh, both for, uh, all, well, for all levels of the organization, for the production people, as well as the actual workers themselves, uh, might work out to be best. So that works too. So one to two hours would be a great sort of benchmark and a target to shoot for. Okay, okay. And it's 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 definitely difficult uh, in industrial settings sometimes to move workers around. Um, it, you know, right now we have uh, limited access to workers. There seems to be um, a very much of a worker shortage, uh, depending on which side of the fence that, that you sit on that subject. So it can definitely be difficult. But it's always, again, kind of a good idea uh, for that worker, that, that worker's health. Right. I mean, you're going to get. I hate to say it, but you're going to get a better return on investment from your worker when they have that flexibility, that movement around. And again, I, I speak on, on my reflection, on my experience, where um, moving every hour, or every couple hours, you know, I got to do different jobs and everyone has kind of their favorite job. So again, you kind of look forward to that rotation uh, in, in some aspects. So that can kind of lead to some sort of serotonin release as well within the worker, which is which is always good as well. So I'm kind of curious, again, with your experience, you have a long history in health and safety. Do you have some tangible examples of health and safety that, you know, people can relate to? Again, trying to focus on on the health side. Yes, for sure. There's uh, one of the bigger uh, areas of uh, concern in some workplaces is uh, air quality, as an example, mm -hmm. uh, because the way the, uh, the workspace is arranged and the kinds of activities going on within the uh, working areas, uh, the air quality may be of such that uh, the effect on people's health uh, can be impacted negatively. Uh, so that's one, one aspect to look at. Another one which is very typical in most manufacturing facilities is the level of uh, noise or uh, sound levels being yes. quite extensive impact on health on that and the, the impact on health with respect to noise is uh, huge it's it's a lot wider than one than most people believe most people certainly understand and, and can appreciate hearing loss as an impact but it goes a lot deeper than that psychologically it has an impact on the brain and uh, ultimately on physiologically then translates to impact on the body and the body's ability to work effectively and efficiently and uh, if that's impacted, the overall health of the worker is affected uh, in areas where noise is a consistent factor. And that's probably one of the uh, bigger areas. Also, another area coming up these days is in, in this time of year, uh, being that we're approaching the summer months, is heat. Mm. And the excessive amount of heat and the impact that has on health uh, for the workers. And again, like you said, the return on investment, the productivity is greatly affected in a negative way uh, when excessive amount of heat is present in the workplace. Plus the fact that, of course, uh, with excessive amount of heat could be uh, various serious health effects in that uh, workers could end up being hospitalized 
are unfortunately even worse in very extreme circumstances, such as in foundries and in mills where there may be machinery that's producing high levels of heat that people are exposed to. Yeah, that's that's a very interesting point because it's hard. I you know again, I think back to my my history uh, working in a factory, and you touched on a few things. Uh, heat is definitely a huge one, and, and I definitely want to talk about that. Uh, hearing loss uh, is another major one for health, and I I want to I want to take a moment to talk about that uh, quite a lot right now. Uh, working in 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 industry that I do right now as a TUV functional safety engineer, I go to a lot of factories, uh, and I've I don't have my own earplugs. I need to get my own custom ear fittings. Uh, I think that's really important. I still kind of use the single use ones, but I can vividly remember going to a uh, a facility um, local here, and they had a bunch of presses. They weren't large presses, you know, they weren't very, very large presses, but they were, there were a lot of presses. And the guy I was meeting with, um, we were talking about light curtains and he, we walked into the facility. I said, Oh, can I have some earplugs? He didn't offer them, which was strange because more often than not, it's a mandate, right? People, before you even get on the floor, people check, do you have steel toe boots? Do you have glasses? And Oh yeah, here's earplugs. That's kind of the standard procedure for any visitor coming on site. And he didn't offer them, and I asked him, and he kind of looked at me strange, like I was I was the weird one wanting to protect my safety. I mean, I'm no spring chicken either, but still, you know, I still want to be able to hear my kids' voices either 20, mm-hmm. 30 years from now, right? Um, so, you know, he gave them to me, and I put them in, and, and uh, we keep going. I said, oh, you're, you're not wearing them. He goes, oh, you know, I've been working here 40 years. I can't hear anything anyways. And I'm like, what a really sad tragic way that you know i'm already damaged why bother even protecting what i have already and i think a lot of people don't realize that hearing loss is 100 percent permanent inside your eardrums you have these very fine hairs that pick up on the on the vibrations and if you damage them from excessive noise or excessive uh exposure to noise those hairs whittle away and get destroyed and they don't grow back like if you lose hearing, that's it. It's it's definitely an absolute when it comes to hearing loss, and unfortunately, it is so gradual. And probably that uh, individual that you were speaking of is one of those people that, uh, in over the course of their work uh, life, they didn't even realize they were losing hearing until it got to a point where it was really too late and uh, irreversible. Uh, as you say, it, it it's permanent. And uh, once it occurs, it's done. Uh, so at any level of hearing loss that has occurred in an individual, that's something you'll never regain. So ultimately, the protection of um, uh, exposure to noise, uh, and there's several ways that can be approached. Hearing protection is uh, the most common way that most people understand and, and appreciate. And appreciate. Uh, but the, yeah, use of the, of the protective measures to uh, reduce exposure in the first place is the best means by which somebody's long-term health can be impacted in a positive way if it's applied properly mm-hmm. and if people understand and recognize the value of protecting their hearing for themselves, uh, their family, and their future families. Uh, you mentioned your children. Well, you you eventually will have grandchildren in all likelihood. <laughs> and uh, and unfortunately, too, the, the first levels of uh, hearing loss that become most evident and when it does occur 
are the higher frequencies. So uh, young children and uh, female voices become almost uh, indiscernible hmm. uh, with somebody with significant hearing loss to the point where it, again, has a lot of psychological impact as well as physiological impact on, on one's life uh, down the road. So the health effects are far more than just the fact that somebody's gone, you know, deaf or almost deaf. And uh, so learning about those kinds of factors and getting people to appreciate and understand the value of um, the protection of their hearing uh, is so important. So there's, there's, there's trickle-down effects, as you're talking about, right? Because there's the immediate effect. I say immediate because a lot of the times the, the health aspects are slowly deteriorating. But there's an immediate recognized issue of, I've lost this sense, whatever that may be. Uh, yeah. But like you said, there's, there's a psychological component to it because, uh, you know, workers can get frustrated because they can't hear something that they used to or they're having difficulty hearing something. Um, you know, you, you run a risk of, again, in your personal life, not being able to recognize hazards anymore. Uh, just simple hazards like, again, driving on the road, not hearing the road noises anymore. I know when I'm driving, um, you know, I, I'm very in tune with my vehicle and I can notice, uh, you know, if uh, there's a problem with the wheel bearing, I can hear it first and then I can feel it. So to lose that kind of a sense again, right, there's there's that that. Um, that mental aspect that starts uh, wearing on you as well. Now, uh, uh, the listeners here have probably heard some very interesting noise as well. So I'm going to take this opportunity. Who do you have with you as a guest? Because people are, are going to be very surprised and thinking I'm piping in a noise. Who, who do you have with you uh, besides you there? I have with me uh, one of my birds. Uh, the name is Jeffrey. It's actually a female. We, we adopted uh, her and, the original owner didn't know it was a female, and uh, she's a, a macaw, and uh, macaw can generate some humongous levels of sound <laughs> to the point where it actually is frightening and can uh, startle somebody, especially if they're not uh, familiar with the bird and its ability to screech as loudly as it does. <laughs> so often I keep myself a distance from her <laughs> to help reduce the exposure of the sounds emanating from her. So that's one means of protecting myself from her great levels of sound. Uh, and in, in today's case, I brought her close by because otherwise uh, she's upstairs in the, in my office area and she will uh, screech if I'm not present and she hears me speaking. So I brought her down here. So occasionally she'll sort of do the odd little yelp here from now and then there's also another little bird uh, um, an amazon gray uh, that's upstairs and she sings or he sings i should say it's a it's a male so uh, he sings some great tunes and makes some actually very pleasant sounds and not screeching as often as this but this one's definitely a creature so my apologies in advance if that background sound of screeching occurs that's that's okay that that actually kind of leads to a very interesting question to, uh, about sound again. Um, there's two kind of scenarios that are bad for you. Obviously, very loud sounds. Uh, they're, they're immediate. They're, they're well-known. Sometimes uh, a very loud sound, if you're close in proximity, you can actually recoil in pain. But it's kind of like a sunburn as well. That, that what is it? I think it's at 85 decibel, 83 decibel. I, can't, I don't know the exact value. But there's a certain level that, for a long period of time, exposure to that sound can be very damaging as well. It's almost like a sunburn where it's not 
it's not it's okay in low doses but prolonged exposure again over an eight hour shift can have serious dramatic effects immediately as well as long term as well yes most definitely in most jurisdictions and uh, certainly in canada uh, but in, the, in, in most international jurisdictions understand from a health and safety perspective what they call the 85 decibel rule. And that, that's the level at which uh, when exposed to up to 85 decibels uh, uh, for an eight hour period is acceptable, although it can still cause some hearing loss. It's mm-hmm. not as significant beyond, but it's it's the threshold that's been accepted down the road that may change as a lot of things in health and safety are learned but that is the acceptable level at 85 and below Uh, and certainly if there's exposures of uh, higher than 85 decibels for uh, any period of time it's expected that uh, measures be taken to help uh, manage the either the noise level itself from the source uh, or if that's not possible then the use of uh, appropriate hearing protective devices to help protect the uh, those people that may be exposed, and uh, there's a there's a few other technical factors. We won't get into them, but there's also other aspects of the sound and the the makeup of the sound in terms of the kinds of frequencies that are built within that 85 decibel range that can also have negative impact on uh, on hearing and and the ability to uh, to lose your hearing, unfortunately. Hmm. So there's a, a number of technical factors we won't get into here on this discussion, but certainly things that uh, the listeners may be uh, curious about. And if they are, there are a number of resources available uh, to for them to check out and to ask questions about if they're concerned in their workplaces. Awesome. Awesome. And and, and the, the, you, you mentioned again the, the initial conversation about heat uh, being a, a health factor. And I can remember working um, in a factory where I worked uh, we manufactured a substance that had to be melted quite a few times. So there was a lot of heaters. Now, it wasn't, uh, well, at the time, it certainly felt like I was working in a mill, but it wasn't as bad as working in a forager mill. And I can, I can vividly remember the, the, the loathing feeling of having the EHS or the person come down to our line with this wet bulb test and sit there with this little device and then go, yep, it's fine. You don't need a 15-minute break and walk away. Meanwhile, it felt like I was in a wetsuit uh, just retaining all of my moisture on all of my clothing. So in one of those instances, it's it's a situation where you have uh, a factory, a workplace that is trying to not only get uh, the most out of the workers, but also adhere to, let's face it, the minimum outlined by the standard. But at the same time, not trying to get taken advantage as well, because workers, you know, in, in certain workplaces will always try and push the line. So there has to be there has to be this black and white stance at some point. Right. You can't always have the gray divide. So how do you help companies um, get that buy-in from the workplace because, I, you know, again, this was 20 years ago. I don't know if the wet bulb test has changed or evolved, but I can certainly remember uh, that was definitely a, a very hated test. Uh, the other problem that we had was because of what we manufactured, we had, uh, there was scents and odors. So we couldn't open up uh, garage doors and everything because 
uh, we were right close to residential areas. So we were restricted on opening up airspaces for environmental pollutants as well. So how do you help uh, those kind of companies with that kind of resistance? You know, is, is there some sort of wisdom you can impart upon people to uh, help get the buy-in from the workers to make it a little bit more bearable again, right? As we're coming into the hotter months, how, how do we get past this? Uh, well, you know, the number is 22 and we're, we're 19 and a half, you know, no chance. Yeah, that's, that's actually a really great point that you raised because uh, when it comes to heat and exposure to heat, uh, as with uh, other types of exposures, there are different sensitivities that house will have to be taken into account relative to uh, the people's ability to manage uh, the heat. Some people are very accustomed to uh, hot environments, hot and humid environments, to the point where they don't feel discomfort. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, there are those that are very sensitive to heat and or humidity and uh, succumb to it to the point where uh, they can have some physiological effects, people, you know, effects on their body uh, reacting and ultimately uh, the people not being able to work effectively or possibly even, you know, things like fainting, uh, blacking out, uh, which is now getting to a very dangerous level uh, for them personally, where even the the work environment may not have exceeded any uh, legislated limit. And unfortunately, with heat in in the, in uh, this province in Ontario uh, and in most of Canada, there's actually no legislated levels of uh, heat exposure mm. uh, other than that in terms of uh, being able to tolerate it to the point where one's health is not um, poorly affected. And that's sort of the basic guideline uh, to use is, is saying, well, where do where is it that our workers and taking into account individuals, uh, where is it that our workers are affected by heat adversely to the point where their health can be uh, tremendously affected? And uh, at the same time, most workplaces, too, still recognize that even though they may not reach a certain numerical threshold, uh, their threshold relates to their ability to produce and be effective in their operation and their work that they're doing. And if the environment is such that it's negatively affecting them, they're probably taking notes saying, well, maybe we should do something because we want to be effective as a workplace. And then they start to recognize and connect the dots and saying, let's put in the right measures to ensure people are not negatively affected by heat and the exposure to heat. Uh, and therefore, uh, they end up taking care of the workers and the workplace as a whole. Uh, and there's a whole array of different types of exposure uh, levels, depending on the type of activity uh, that the individuals are involved with, their physical environment, uh, whether the air movement and the air quality relative to the uh, control of uh, heat exposure can be managed. And even to the point where I'm sure you've come across and seen, and some of the listeners will have, uh, relate to this is where air is being moved to help cool the body. Mm -hmm. And if that air that's being moved to help cool the body is such that it's hotter than the body temperature, i.e. 37 degrees uh, Celsius, um, then you're actually going in the wrong direction because you're moving hot air onto a body, which now cannot cool uh, because of the fact that the ambient temperature is greater than that of the body's temperature and therefore the heat level of the body is going to increase and be very detrimental, can be deadly uh, to those people exposed. 
that's uh that's a very interesting point about the movement of air because uh, a lot of the times we do see a lot of fans in the industry um, they seem like a economical investment from the workplace to try and provide some sort of relief um i know myself we have fans in our house uh, i'm not very good with them we just have them on i never change the direction depending on if it's hot or cold i'm sure dan you're an expert you probably know when what what time of day and what year uh what month to change the direction so you know whether you're pulling cool air from the basement or you're pushing hot air down and out of the the room i, I just make the mistake of turning the fan on and lying under it and hoping oh my gosh please someone take this heat away <laughs> You know, you raised a great point, Matthew, and that's related to uh, how does one feel of the impact of the adjustment or change or lack of change that they've made? Mm. And that does not seem to be providing you relief and a level of comfort. Then take a look at let's do it the other way and see if that improves the comfort level and gives us additional relief because sometimes that experience alone can be just as worthy as as having studied and, and knowing all the technical stuff, uh, it's all, it boils down to how does the body react to its environment? And if you're getting a positive uh, reaction from a change to that environment, then you're heading in the right direction. If you're not, then you, you look for change. That's it. Yeah, so that when it comes to safety, right? Safety is always dynamic. You always have to be changing and adjusting, looking at what you're doing, um, and it's it's sometimes, I think, a little bit frustrating as uh, workplace owners because you're told that this might work and you're given assurances that this might work. So you invest in that change, whether it's $1,000 in the war, whether it's $20,000 really depends on your environment, right? But then if the reaction from the workers is underwhelming, then you feel like, okay, well, I've made an investment. This has to work. So you try and force those workers into using whatever measure that was, right? So you you kind of run into that cyclical solution of, unfortunately, you made an investment. It didn't work out, but now you're trying to force workers into it, and it's going to have a negative impact because now you're not getting buy-in from your workers anymore. Now they're going to start doing other things. They're going to find their own ways to find relief. They're going to do their own thing because the culture that you've created, unfortunately, is not a positive one, right? And it was very interesting to hear you. And I was very surprised um, when you said that uh, for heat relief, or, or I can't remember the technical term, my apologies, but that there wasn't a standard in terms of a quantitative value. It was just basically trying to make sure that your workers can work safely and adequately in the workplace. And for me, again, I think back to uh, my time uh, in the factory and they I guess they had an internal number of, you know, if you didn't hit this number, then you didn't get the payout of the five minute water break or whatnot. So it always felt like some, you know, it felt like that person operating that wet bulb test didn't, you know, they, they were being paid off. You know, they were, you know, maybe they were drying the bulb out a little bit before they did the test or, so, you know, that's the way it felt. So it's very interesting to hear that there's not a standard. So that is very, very curious because now that kind of encourages, um, which in my mind isn't the right, the right solution, but that encourages the squeaky wheel syndrome, you know, that encourages the workers to 
complain that oh i'm feeling i'm feeling upset i'm feeling sick i'm you know i need to sit down right that, that it, it it's unfortunate that there's not sort of a a guiding baseline level that you know this this is our our, our qualitative lowest standard that we expect um and it's kind of a situation where you have to get feedback for from the workers and depending on the work environment your workers don't want to speak up and then they're putting themselves in danger unbeknownst to them of heat exhaustion of uh noise well i mean noise has has a has a, has a baseline um but those those kind of experiences they're putting themselves in those dangers yeah you're right and the, you know let me clarify one thing the legislation in most jurisdictions in canada don't specify a heat level uh, of, uh, you know, I'll say, uh, you know, legislated level of uh, exposure. Okay. Uh, however, you know, taking that into account, there are standards, there are uh, nationally and internationally uh, recognized standards, which are outside of the legislation, which are ones that uh, can be used as guides to assist us in determining what the most appropriate levels would be like mm-hmm. and how to them means by which we can get there Uh, and even though the standards may not be specific and I'll use Ontario as a great example because that's the jurisdiction that we're currently speaking from uh, they have uh, a general what's called a general duty clause which is take caution reasonable under the circumstances and the Ministry of Labor Training Skills Development which is in charge of of, um, in, in, you know, enforcing the legislation in a workplace, if they come across a situation or a year of a situation where heat exposure may be an issue, they'll refer back to the employer's uh, and the supervisor's requirements to meet those legis- that uh, basic legislative standard of uh, taking every precaution reasonable. And in such, uh, what's reasonable is to refer to uh, ergonomic and, and health standards that do exist outside of the legislation to use those standards to be able to ensure that the workers uh, are being, you know, provided the best possible work environment. Again, taking also into account, as I mentioned earlier, the fact that there are individual susceptibilities that also have to be considered and, uh, you know, recognizing that. So going forward, there are a number of health and safety uh, expertise out there uh, that uh, we encourage workplaces to uh, tap into, uh, to utilize, uh, to connect with, to help them, to help themselves, to get the best possible solutions in place, to ultimately have a positive impact on the health of the workers. And that's kind of the, a really good direction. And that's the, that's the kind of workplace that if one is working at and the workplace is uh, uh, eager enough and anxious enough to say, let's reach out for additional assistance and get the appropriate help. Or if they have internal resources and they're finding those internal resources aren't really giving them the results, the ultimate positive results on the impact of uh, health on the workers, then to look elsewhere or to examine that further and to say, well, maybe we should look elsewhere and help us help ourselves to help each other. Yeah, and when you when you start looking to the experts, such as yourself, Dan, uh, you start looking for those kind of resources. Um, it's it's always difficult to make a connection with the worker because um, when when you when you're when you're in a workplace and, and you're 
you're employed a lot of the times in these kind of labor intensive environments the perception from that labor again i i think back to to my own experiences i didn't really perceive the world beyond me you know that that's kind of the sad truth is is i just saw me that's all i saw and if i wasn't experiencing something immediately um i didn't i didn't agree with it um so if somebody were to tell me you know don't touch that that's hot unless i experienced that or i came close to it and i noticed there was some heat emanating from it i may not have believed it so when we're talking to consultants and experts like yourself dan how do you make those connection with those people to make the proper impact? Because there has to be something relatable that that worker can grasp onto. Again, we're talking about health benefits in the health and safety world. And a lot of these benefits, these health benefits are intangibles. They are something that takes so long to realize the negative effects or, and, and, and even longer sometimes to realize the positive effects. So how do you try and make an immediate impact in order to maintain that connection throughout the weeks, the months, the years that it takes to achieve the positive impacts of health? Matthew, you, you hit on a very uh, vital component of uh, workplaces where uh, the interaction of the, uh, those people at the front lines and those people that are helping to manage the workplace overall and, and get what what you know the productivity and the and and the throughput of whatever services and or products they're producing etc the relationship there in terms of what works and what uh, helps is interaction and uh, one of the best means of interaction for uh, a workplace of uh, again in in this particular jurisdiction and many across uh, canada is where you have a, a, a larger, when I say 20 plus, consider larger workforce, uh, you have what's uh, referred to as a joint health and safety committee mm -hmm. and having uh, internal resources to help manage your health and safety within your workplace to take away, I'll say, to take away the, the, um, the bias that might exist from person to person because there are different, and I'm not using that term negatively, that bias is, it, it varies because people differ and yes. people uh, react differently. Some people may be more sensitive or less sensitive to uh, particular uh, health and safety environments and the impact on them or how they feel it's impacting them. So the role of the Joint Health and Safety Committee is one of which um, management and the workforce work together to help manage their health and safety issues, to take a look at those and they also get uh, appropriate uh, training and understand that sometimes there are levels of uh, understanding or knowledge that they don't have internally and to understand that they can reach out to others uh, to get assistance, whether it's an expert uh, or just even contacting and, you know, the, the, the Ministry of Labor Training and Skills Development can also offer resources to assist workplaces so that they can help themselves to get better and managing their health and safety issues uh, and, in, and in the case of heat for example to learn more about what kind of uh, resources they can use to help uh, them to uh, take better control of their environments and uh, finding ways to work within the controls and the limitations that they may have 
it's it's very interesting about the joint health and safety committee because it's i agree it's a necessary group that's needed within any organization especially when you start getting into the larger 20 plus 100 plus etc um you need all different types of stakeholders from all walks of within that company you need people from management you need people from the floor you need supervisors you need all different opinions in order to make a proper um, decision when you're when you're discussing different subjects and it's very interesting my my finding and, and i hope you have a different opinion and if you don't i hope we can talk about it my finding is when a company creates a joint health and safety committee all of a sudden there's a there's a pride that sometimes is created where the hope is that i've gathered five people together they should they should know it all and all of a sudden you you come you can you can get into this culture and idea that the joint health and safety committee since i carry that title I, i'm an expert i i'm expected and they don't seek out information outside of what they know their core knowledge and again that that comes from uh, the pride of of if i have to seek out a third party like dan to consult on our services as a joint health and safety committee we failed I've encountered that a few times. So I, I want to encourage people and, and, listen, and listeners here that when you create the Joint Health and Safety Committee, you are creating a community within your organization of your existing knowledge. Please, please, please reach out to other experts in specific applications and industry. Again, myself, I'm, I'm an expert in functional safety. That's what I know. If you ask me about health, I would be saying talk to Dan because I don't know anything. But it always feels like there's there's that culture that evolves from being on that joint health and safety committee that all of a sudden is, oh, we're good. We don't need any help. Have you experienced yeah, that, that? Absolutely, Matthew. That's uh, and it kind of loops. It, it, it absolutely loops back to your first, uh, you know, our first point of conversation is putting the health back in health and safety, because very often those people that are part of the Joint Health and Safety Committee have a pretty good understanding and probably relate very well to safety-related issues, but maybe not so much on the health side and maybe are lacking the knowledge, skills, and experience related to the health side. One of the things that the Joint Health and Safety Committee, again, in this jurisdiction and many other jurisdictions in Canada have, is the requirement, the absolute legislated requirement, to build in that uh, at least two members, one from management and one from the workforce, uh, get through uh, what's called the certification. Uh, Joint Health and Safety Committee certification uh, is uh, gives them an extra level of knowledge, maybe over and above others within the committee. And within that uh, training that they go through to become certified members, they get to understand that they do have limitations and they do, they do have the ability to reach out. In fact, they have a mandated requirement to reach out where they're dealing with issues that are beyond their internal capability, or even if they feel that it's beyond their internal capability. Uh, that's part of the, the makeup of it, to uh, allow them to have the freedom to reach out and get assistance externally to make sure that their workplace is the best that it can be. So the first resource is using what's called the internal responsibility system, using resources available mm -hmm. within the organization 
using all levels of knowledge within that organization. And then the second level is what's, what's referred to as beyond the internal responsibility system, and that's reaching out, reaching out to experts, reaching out to, to others that have the knowledge and ability to assist with areas that maybe they are not as well-founded in or don't have the ex expected knowledge on. Yeah, that's that's got to be very difficult uh, sometimes to to you know swallow your pride and, and go out for those kinds of resources. Um, I'm I'm glad that there is again the Joint Health and Safety Committees are not my expertise. I'm glad that there is uh, a little bit of a, a guideline or mandate of how those committees are supposed to be formed and what's expected of of each kind of member. Because again, I, I speak of my own internal experience and, and what I've seen out there. I mean, I'm talking about the bad stuff, but I have seen so many good joint health and safety committees that invite you in to, to have a discussion because there's a yearning to learn, right? It's when we come into those resistances that you come into problems and how you break those down is you have to remember that we're not all experts at everything. Um, you know, what's what's the expression? Uh, <laughs> Jack of all trades, but expert of none, right? Yeah. Well, when you come into a joint health and safety committee, the hope is that you have those balanced players that are the jack of all trades. And then you have a few people that are experts at a few different sections. But again, when it comes to safety, health and safety, it's dynamic. You can't ever get 100% coverage. You can't ever get to 0% risk. So the same when you're forming your committee, you can't ever get to 100% knowledge. I'm sure, Dan, with, with your 30-plus years of experience, you're still learning things new every day. No, absolutely. Learning, learning about health and safety is an ongoing process for anybody who's involved in health and safety, whether it's a manager of the environment health and safety or portion of an organization, uh, the Joint Health and Safety Committee members themselves, uh, for smaller workplaces, the uh, health and safety representative, uh, where you have uh, maybe just a single person in a smaller organization that's uh, trying to help with uh, assisting in that area. It's an ongoing process of learning, for sure. And the other component that goes along with the training for the for the certified member of the Joint Health and Safety Committee is to understand that, that everybody does have limitations and everybody does uh, recognize what those limitations are and to collectively uh, pool the knowledge you do have and at the same time make a make a list of the things that you need and believe that you are are not as uh, efficient in and require additional assistance in uh, and uh, you know being uh, a jack of all trade and a master of none is not necessarily a, a negative thing it's actually can be positive using mm -hmm. the understanding and ability to to recognize the limitations that everybody has so when we're we're talking about health and safety and we're talking about uh, changes in the workplace, um, quite often a lot of people talk about training um, or or PP. We talked a little bit about PPE as well, you know, hearing protection and whatnot. Um, there the, and you talked about another aspect of it as well, um, but we never really actually identify what that is. If for those of you that don't know, when it comes to um, adding change in the workplace or, you know, performing your risk assessment and then how do you carry out that risk assessment? There's something called the hierarchy of controls. Uh, with, if you look it up, there's tons of images online about it. It looks like an inverted pyramid. And what you have is it goes through the different steps 
of how you can affect change on uh, whatever hazard that exists. So the best examples or the easiest to comprehend examples are the safety side, the, the physical impact. So if you had a spinning blade out there that could uh, lacerate a part of your body or, or, or for, uh, something worse, then the hierarchy of controls, first of all, says, can we remove the hazard? You know, can we get rid of the spinning blade and put something else in? If no, then how do we protect, uh, how do we protect access to the hazard? How do we, um, um, how do we train the worker? And, and then, you know, finally sort of, P uh, sorry, the administrative controls is, is training PPE and signage. So always the best way is to remove the hazard and then remove access to the hazard. And then you have training. So when we're talking about training, that's usually the, the, the last ditch effort, training and signage. So the hope is always to try and engineer the problem out. So we talked about heat, we talked about noise, uh, we talked about wearing ear protection, we talked about you know uh, water breaks and whatnot. Those are the administrative controls. Can you give examples or can you talk about a little bit of how you've helped companies apply the hierarchy of controls into the health side? Because again, it's sometimes a little bit harder because of how long term uh, these effects are. Again, you know, I'm talking about a safety side of a laceration, you know, ouch, my hand gets put in there. What am I going to do? Well, I can't remove the saw because I need the saw to perform the action. So remove access. That's kind of easy. But how do you remove sound? How do you remove heat? How do you how do you apply that hierarchy of controls to better, you know, apply uh, better posture, better ergonomics in, in a workplace? Yeah, that's a, that's those are definitely areas where, uh, again, this is where the expertise uh, that does reside within the workplace in terms of their knowledge and and skills related to what they've been exposed to doesn't have to be technical in a very high level. So we'll use heat as as one example, and noise uh, will will combine those uh, two. Came across a, a number of workplaces that use um, what's referred to as a shrink tunnel. It's a uh, special uh, machine basically it's an oven where a product will go through the product is uh, in, enrobed in a uh, in a material that when exposed to heat shrinks and adheres tightly to it most people can refer to or relate to uh, the uh, the water bottles that they may purchase at their local supermarket mm -hmm. that are uh, all uh, sort of seem to be strapped together as it were in one plastic blister and that's uh, basically that's an ex you know those those collection of bottles 24 36 whatever number they are uh, go on a tray they they're wrapped in, in very loosely wrapped in this special material that when they go through this tunnel the heat tunnel it shrinks up nice and tightly and holds them together well that heat of course is not something you want to have uh, the workers unnecessarily exposed to uh, because it just raises the level of heat within the work environment. So a number of things that can be done there. One would be to uh, buy a device that may have the appropriate uh, exhaust and ventilation systems built in such that the heat is not directed out into the workplace. It's vented externally from the, uh, from the workplace so workers are not exposed. Where that machine may already exist and you're not looking to purchase or replace it with a new machine because it may be too cost prohibitive, maybe an enclosure, a uh, special enclosure, which isn't as costly as buying a new machine can be put to again, help uh, divert the heat from uh, the people who are exposed to it 
and extract it and move it outward from their work environment. So that heat now is deflected and not the workers are not exposed, yet it's still doing what it needs to do relative to the product going through that heat tunnel. Uh, very similarly with noise, uh, th there are uh, portions of machinery which can produce high levels of noise. And if you can buy a machine which has a lower level of noise in the first place, which is that's the control at the source, the highest level possible, where you're eliminating the noise from design, from its original design, that's ideal. Or you can't, or you already have a machine and you're not going to spend the money to replace it immediately. Uh, maybe you look to forecasting that change over the period of time that that machine is going to be changed out, then apply that elimination factor for the new machine. But for the existing machine, again, you'd maybe look at an enclosure. This would require uh, an engineer or some, some technical expertise mm -hmm. to determine what the most appropriate enclosure is that helps contain the sound level, uh, dampen the sound level such that the, what's emitted is at a very much lower level so that the noise is not there and workers don't require to wear hearing protection because the noise levels are brought to a very low level. And so those are methods of control that can be done before applying control at the workers, such as use of PPE or job rotation or mm -hmm. things of those factors, because those are then become, you know, more issues to help them to have to manage. When you yes. look at, at the worker and things like administrative controls require a very significant amount of management and that sometimes can detract from the efficiencies of the workplace. So here's where efficiencies in health and safety can have an impact on efficiencies within the workplace and have a direct correlation. So often I'd spend some time with workers and workplaces and the management within the workplaces to help them understand the relationships. And often you see the light go on when they go, aha, yeah, that, that makes sense. And we can afford to do those kinds of levels of controls. Right, yeah, that's, that's a very good point about uh, the management, because when you get into administrative control, not only do you have to have person, uh, person or persons responsible for uh, looking after that, but the level of documentation that is required sometimes is enormous as well. Uh, then you have training and sign off and you have, like you said, you've created a whole program. You've created a, a whole set of work just for one or few people where if you eliminated that need, uh, you have saved yourself long term costs as well. Right. Absolutely. And, that's... you know, there, there, too, that's where good management has a better understanding of of the limitations they may be facing looking at short term versus long term. And uh, very often, uh, un unlike uh, other aspects of things we deal with uh, within our uh, environment, uh, when I talk about environment, I'm talking about our, our political environment and uh, work environment, totally different. Uh, workplaces can spend and look to the future and uh, look to making long-term investments and longer-term uh, changes within the workplace and making sure that uh, the things that they're doing uh, are affecting them positively on a longer term basis. Their shareholders also love that, of course, too, where they are a publicly traded company or even privately held company. The owners of the business go, yes, this is something that's definitely worthwhile and has a return on that investment so that we can do better for the future, uh, return that uh, investment to those people who uh, have uh, put money out, as well as having a positive impact on 
the workforce itself, and ultimately, too, having a positive impact on the uh, people who purchase the products and or services from those organizations, because the organization that produces more effectively can also sell uh, and, and offer their services at a, at a more competitive rate, uh, or at least maybe return a bigger profit, even if they keep their products and services uh, at the same cost levels of, that others provided at, but ultimately, too, a positive impact on the business. It's, it's, a, it's a constant balance uh, between health and safety and return on investment. And I'm, I'm glad you talked about how health and safety here, uh, especially health, can provide a great return for a company. And so many times people look at health and safety as uh, the, the red number on their bottom line, right? Is I have this equipment, um, I have to put this much money into this equipment and it's going to make me this much money. But what people don't realize, again, is talking about the health side of the health and safety is your workers in the workplace, if not provided adequate access to proper health, are going to be deteriorating over time. And how quickly they deteriorate is what is going to have an effect on you. And you do not want your workers to deteriorate quickly because as you, the longer the worker works in your workplace, the more valuable they are, the more resources they have, the more knowledge they have, the more you want to retain them. So there's, there's that immediate that you can realize in terms of the health and health and safety that your worker you're investing in your worker when you invest in health, whether it's heat, whether it's hearing, whether it's ergonomics, whatever it is, that you're keeping that worker happy and healthy in that workplace. So you can, you know, they can work for the 40 years that people don't do anymore in, in this day and age. But, you know, I myself always hope that when I work for a company, uh, that's it. I hate moving companies. So anyway, <laughs> that's a segue. Um, so. The, the other side that you talked about, which was really interesting to me as well, uh, talking about the shareholders and whatnot, people don't realize the health insurance costs of that worker once they've left your workplace. There is a long-term effect that you have on that person. So if they have hearing loss, if they have um, you know, ergonomic issues, the posture problems, if they have you know, whatever health effects that's going to carry the, with them with the rest of their life and may also, depending on your, your, your workplace, have an impact on your bottom line as well, because they could be draining that number on a, on a monthly basis based on the health premiums that you have to start paying out because, uh, you know, they have to go for chiropractic, they have to, go, whatever it is, you know, they need hearing aids every couple of years. Um, so that's a, a very interesting point that, again, there is a long-term and large cost associated with improper health in the workplace because that worker that has been working for you for one year, two year, 50 years, uh, is going to have an, an impact on your bottom line as well. So it's a much longer return on investment. Of course, uh, workplaces always look at equipment and look at, you know, the short term, the one, two year return on investment for that equipment. But you need to start looking at the larger size of this whole return on investment is you have a short term return on investment and you have a long term return on investment. 
And ultimately, that long-term return on investment, depending on how you handle your health side, is really going to impact the productivity and the success of that workplace. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and again, uh, we have uh, here in Ontario, we have uh, workplaces pay through uh, the Workplace Safety Insurance Board, uh, pay premiums on a monthly basis, uh, which for some workplaces could result in uh, literally hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in premiums, depending on the size, of course. But a substantial uh, portion of their bottom line goes towards paying those uh, annual premiums. And if their health and safety, uh, the health especially again too, the health and health and safety is negatively impacted, those premiums continue to rise uh, to the point where it can affect the product, the, the profitability of an organization and their ability to stay in business uh, because of that impact. And conversely, a workplace that uh, continues to show improvement and shows that they're able to manage and uh, not help uh, not uh, provide uh, any need for compensation because they've managed everything, their premiums continue to decline. Mm -hmm. And that declining uh, premium has a, an impact, again, on their bottom line, making them more profitable, making them uh, more um, acceptable in terms of their shareholders' uh, interest in, in, in there. And, of course, uh, on both sides, whether it's negative or positive, has an impact, again, on the worker and that frontline activity and medium level to the, the directors or, or leaders of those frontline people are, are impacted by turnover if it's high. Uh, and, uh, and that again has an impact on so many levels it's of an organization that once an organization sees that light go on, often it's very late in the process. Doesn't mean it's irreversible. It's certainly something they can impact on and, and change going forward but it certainly has an impact in the sense that they're going, what the heck happened and how do we make sure that we don't get back into this position again? So keeping things uh, moving in the right direction, using all the resources available to manage internally the health and safety of an organization, making sure that uh, workers' uh, health are not negatively impacted has a tremendous effect in terms of the positive impact that the business can have. Yeah, it's it's a very valid point of uh, don't don't give up on safety. It's never too late to invest in health and safety. There's an old expression about when's the best time to plant a forest 20 years ago. When's the next best time to plant a forest right now? Absolutely. So when it comes to your health and safety, if you feel like it's lacking, uh, please start investing in it. Please start getting people involved. Create a joint health and safety committee. Get the consultative people like Dan. Uh, involved with with your process to to help you out um you know i i really appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk with you dan it's it's been a a delight for me for learning about health I, i've had no experience with health so this has been a huge learning experience for me and it's been quite wonderful to work learn about the different aspects of of the other side of the coin because i've always focused on safety that's always been functional safety has always been my my work i know you work in that side as well but the health side was very, very interesting. It's been a great conversation. Um, is there anything uh, going on that uh, the listeners that you want to promote, something unique or something that you have coming up with uh, success on safety or something personal that you want to share? Well, gosh, there's always something going on, Matthew, as we talked about 
uh, all throughout this conversation too. Uh, for myself, uh, in my business, uh, I've, I look for working with clients that get it, uh, or at least want to get it. They understand. I don't look for, I don't look to work with clients who are just managing to want to get by over the next little bit or hurdle. So for me, I see value in working with clients that truly get it and want to continue to make improvements in their health and safety within their operations and ultimately uh, recognize the value of people because it's people that make their businesses operate. They've got people at all levels of their organizations from their, from their clients uh, to the people that help manage the business, right to, of course, the front line themselves that help make the business happen. Uh, the people uh, in the business is what the business is about. And once an organization starts to put those connections together, starts to recognize the people, the strength of people within their organization, they will automatically start to gravitate towards making sure that managing internally is just as important as managing uh, externally when it comes to business. And uh, those are the kinds of businesses that become ultimately more successful uh, and, and ultimately have a greater level of satisfaction uh, within their organization, the people who work within the organization and their clients recognize and, and, and connect to that satisfaction to the point where those clients then become more regular and want to do more business with those uh, types of organizations. Uh, from, from what's new, it comes down to, again, keeping in touch with uh, what's happening in legislation, uh, keeping abreast of uh, changes. They're, fortunately, they're not too great of number of uh, changes that happen in legislation. Uh, and keeping the people within your organization who have a responsibility to manage health and safety, keeping them abreast of those changes and updates and keeping the interest levels high for everybody to recognize that health and safety is important and putting the health and health and safety is the number one thing. I think over the past few years now, a uh, couple of years, COVID has certainly raised the level of consciousness of health and health and safety, I think overall, because I think yes. people how important health is and what kind of an impact health has within an organization. So even though COVID had some very negative uh, impacts to many people and many families directly and indirectly, uh, the good news is that I believe that overall, many workplaces now sort of have a better understanding of the importance and value of health in health and safety. And I thank you for the opportunity of having shared this information. And I hope that the, the listeners of this podcast will have a better understanding and better take up better value for health and health and safety. Well, thank you very much for your time. Uh, does Jeffrey need to say anything before closing out or is, uh, is, is she, is she content with uh, continuing to squawk on? I think she's content just to just be perched out here and have the, <laughs> the occasional little squawk from time to time. So thank you for uh, allowing Jeffrey to be part of this discussion too. That was Dan Seuss from success on safety. If you'd like to reach out to Dan, you can connect with him at dan at successonsafety.ca or his mobile number 519-860-7895 or directly through his website www.successonsafety.ca. He's also active on social media platforms such as LinkedIn, Dan Seuss, D-A-N, 
S-U-E-S-S, Twitter at Dan Seuss, or on Instagram at Success on Safety. Thank you everyone for listening and trying to get this out of safety. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, please contact me at theindustrialsword at gmail.com. Music for this episode was provided by Sleep or Lack Thereof.